the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice, well, he's given up his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Derwin Gray. He is a pastor and the author of the Good Life, What Jesus Teaches About Finding True Happiness. There's a lot that can be said about the pursuit of happiness. It's in our founding documents. We're going to talk about what the scriptures have to say. He takes a look at the Beatitudes. Dr. Derwin Gray will join us later this hour. Well, Attorney General Bill Barr, the nation's top law enforcement officer, clashed repeatedly on Tuesday with Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee over accusations he's carrying out President Trump's political agenda. Tension also flared as Barr and the panel discussed riots across the U.S. that have followed George Floyd's death in police custody. The hearing, which began late after news that um, uh, committee chairman Gerald Nadler was involved in an early morning fender bender, began on a raucous note as Nadler did not uh, hesitate to express his scorn for Barr and the Justice Department, sarcastically telling the attorney general, thank you for being here. It was Barr's first appearance before the committee since becoming Trump's attorney general in February of last year. Barr previously held the job under former President George Herbert Walker Bush from 91 to 93. Nadler also addressed the department's approach to cases related to the Russia investigation, claiming the Department of Justice attitude was the president's enemies will be punished. His friends will be protected no matter the cost and saying the department's actions have caused real damage to our democratic norms. In your time at the department, you have aided and abetted the worst failings of the president, end quote. Nadler said. Well, Jim Jordan defended playing um, a montage of protest violence at Barr's hearing, claiming the Democrats wanted to censor GOP members, apparently only playing a portion of what he had prepared. And Justice Department spokeswoman lamented the heated Barr hearing, saying it was a missed opportunity. On the same day, Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin announced federal agents sent to the city last week were demobilizing. The Trump administration began talks with Oregon's Governor Kate Brown to move agents out of Portland yesterday as well. We'll tell you more about that. The drawdown would be contingent on Portland stepping up its own enforcement as the city continues to see large nightly protests that frequently turn violent. Federal agents were deployed to Seattle, Portland and other cities recently to protect federal properties from continued rioting. A Portland man is charged in the Justice Center arson after his back tattoo led authorities to him. And contraband recovered from Portland rioters includes bleach and Molotov cocktail equipment, according to feds at the scene. Well, after two months of daily and nightly protests and rioting, business owners in Portland are feeling fearful and uncertain what to do next to reclaim their businesses. Stacy Gibson, she's the owner of five fast food restaurants in the Portland area, including one in the troubled downtown section, said it's terrifying trying to keep her businesses alive and her employees in their jobs amid the twin disasters of the coronavirus and the rioting. Presumptive Democratic nominee 
Joe Biden has uh, uh, had a note that suggested Kamala Harris may be the chosen one to be his running mate, although that announcement isn't expected until next week. Laura Ingram points out that House Democrats took cues from the rioters in attempting to a uh, reputational assassination of um, Bill Barr in yesterday's hearing. And California is um, creating its own $600 weekly benefit if Congress fails to act. This is for unemployment. Houston drivers are not paying their tickets, making 550,000 of them ineligible for license renewal. And Apple CEO uh, Cook says his company is uniquely American with no dominant market share. He must be referring, of course, to the fruit Apple because Apple most decidedly has a um, dominant market share. And the Fed is wrestling with its next move as the virus stalls the U.S. economy. Spirit Airlines says 20 percent to 30 percent of their workers are at risk of furloughs. And as uh, reported by the Daily Wire, more than 100 law enforcement agencies have reportedly pulled out of security agreements to send personnel to help with security at the Democratic National Convention next month, in part because they are concerned about recent efforts to limit law enforcement's use of tear gas and pepper spray in responding to violent riots. Uh, Wakesha Police Chief Daniel Thompson, uh, he observed, I understand that uh, use of chemical irritants and pepper spray is serious and those are to be used only when legally justified. But when you take that out of the uh, continuum, that doesn't leave the officers much other than getting harmed or using deadly force. And that's not good for any officer or the public. Well, the Trump administration on Tuesday announced that it was halting applications to an Obama-era program that shields some illegal immigrants from deportations as it considers the policy's future, just weeks after the Supreme Court shut down efforts to halt the program. The Supreme Court ruled last month that the administration's decision to rescind the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program was done in an arbitrary and capricious manner, although they did not rule on the merits of the program itself. As a result, the Department of Homeland Security announced Tuesday that as uh, it considers the future of the program, it will reject all initial requests for protection, as well as applications for employment authorization documents. Moreover, it is also uh, renewing existing protections for only one year rather than for two. Well, Hayden Biden, as some refer to the presumptive nominee, uh, hits Trump's law and order message saying that he's trying to uh, scare the devil out of the people, referring to Donald Trump. A declassified Senate report details a, a bitter argument between the CIA and the FBI over the bogus steel dossier. And Twitter and Facebook deleted a viral video on hydroxychloroquine promoted by Trump. Now, it didn't originate with him. This is a group of doctors who say we have a cure for the disease, for the virus. Now, I'm going to post that on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page if you'd like to see it and decide for yourself its credibility. Twitter partially suspended Don Trump Jr. for sharing the same hydroxychloroquine video. Well, the NFL is set to transform its playing fields and player helmets into Black Lives Matter billboards. And once again, black leaders in Portland are criticizing violent protesters. No one's listening because apparently while Black Lives Matter, black voices don't. Major League Baseball has temporarily suspended the Miami Marlins season over the coronavirus. And 28 states issued warnings about residents receiving unsolicited seed packets from China. Scientists are closer to a blood test for Alzheimer's disease, we also learn. And in Israel, there's a blood test that might be able to determine one's uh, status 
with regard to cancer much easier as well. Well, the EU has leveled sanctions over the Hong Kong security law, inching toward a tough U.S. stance on China, the Wall Street Journal reports, and New Zealand has suspended its extradition uh, treaty with Hong Kong. The Vatican computers were hacked in a Chinese espionage effort, the Washington Examiner reports. And Chicago's deputy police chief is dead in an apparent suicide soon after his promotion. There's more to that story. Uh, you can read online. Colleges are increasingly going online for the fall 2020 semester. No big surprise there. Well, once again, um, the uh, Bill Barr uh, tell, told Congress that he's looking into the Obama's unmasking project. He says um, he's assigned John Bash, the U.S. attorney for the Western Texas uh, to review the Obama-era unmaskings. The unmaskings themselves may have been legal, but the classified information in the transcripts was later leaked to the press to damage the Trump administration. Mr. Barr said Mr. Bash is looking at the high number of unmaskings at the time, including some that do not uh, readily appeal to the line of normal business. Barr also went after Democrats for, among other things, protecting rioters over the people and property. And Bill Barr is leading the Justice Department, Mike Pence points out, in this country with great integrity and brings a lifetime of commitment to the rule of law. But to see it today in the little bit that I was able to watch, it was clear that the Democrats want to hear themselves talk more than they want to hear from the Attorney General of the United States. It was frustrating watching because he literally was not given time to respond to sometimes incendiary charges and things that he said were flatly false uh, when referenced by his uh, political opponents. Molly Hemingway writes that A.G. Barr might be the only adult in the entirety of Washington, D.C. And Andrew McCarthy says Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler and the other Democrats who control the House demanded for months that Barr come to a hearing and testify. But of course, it wasn't anything like an actual hearing, and they didn't want him to testify as an actually uh, answer questions. The session was a coveted election year opportunity to berate the Attorney General of the United States in five-minute installments, accusing Barr of corruption, perjury, violating his oath, betraying the Constitution, at one point even of killing thousands of COVID-19 victims, apparently by being Attorney General during a pandemic. You can read more on that from the National Review. And Lonnie Chen says that Congress should consider legislation limiting the number of hearings it's allowed to hold. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break. Later this hour, we'll talk with Dr. Derwin Gray, author of The Good Life, What Jesus Teaches About Finding True Happiness. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Derwin Gray. He's the author of The Good Life. Well, at least the book by that title. What Jesus Teaches About Finding True Happiness. We'll take a look at the Beatitudes and how they might apply to those of us who are languishing under our current set of circumstances. He'll join us in our next two segments. More than 100 law enforcement agencies have reportedly pulled out of security agreements to send personnel to help with security at the Democratic National Convention next month, in part because they're concerned about recent efforts to limit law enforcement's use of certain repellents. And the Centers for Disease Control director, Robert Redfield, said we're seeing, sadly, far greater suicides now than we are deaths from COVID-19. We're seeing far greater deaths from drug overdoses that are uh, above excess that we had as background than we are seeing the deaths from COVID. Now, I'm not sure if that made sense, but what he's saying is we're seeing more deaths from the one cause than the other, suicides and drug overdoses. Meanwhile, as they steer people toward the left-wing sites, Google continues to censor out conservative news. Breitbart's Christina Wong says the irony of, of uh, my mom escaping communist China for me to be censored in America. 
Well, Black BLM co-founder Patrice Cullors, she uh, warned, without the sea change, our movement recommended for the 2020 Democratic platform, any claims to allyship and solidarity with our work to fight for black liberation are for naught. In other words, all or nothing. She offered 10 amendments, all of which were rejected by the DNC without a vote. She also is demanding Biden approve the so-called Breathe Act, which you can see online. It includes defunding the police, literally defunding, not reducing funding or diverting funding. It is de- de- uh, defunding police. Well, few youth are see, uh, now seeing the founding fathers as heroes, which is a major shift from the older generation. And AOC is calling for an end to federal funding of military recruitment in schools. The pair of amendments, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, made clear that the Democrats are less and less inclined to protect America. And assisted suicides in Canada are seeing a shocking number of deaths for isolation or loneliness. And we've talked here before about the epidemic of loneliness that is not only sweeping this country, but elsewhere. But from the story, the more shocking numbers are uh, those of perceived burden on family, friends or caregivers at 34 percent and isolation and loneliness at 13.7 percent. This suggests that one driving factor behind hundreds of assisted suicides, if not thousands, is the impression that people want them out of the way rather than help support the sick. And one of the conversations I insist on having with my mother on a regular basis, because she has said to me before, I don't want to be a burden. And I remind her, you know, mom, when I was four years old, it never occurred to me that I might be a burden. When I was starting high school, it didn't uh, really bother me. I didn't wake up in the middle of the night thinking, man, I don't want to be a burden on my parents. It never crossed my mind during those years that you fed and clothed me and did everything necessary to provide for me, you and my father. It never crossed my mind. I wasn't troubled by it. Now it's my turn. You are not a burden to us. This is an opportunity to return to you what you've given to us with grace and with joy. It's a conversation that needs to be had in so many cases. And it breaks my heart to think that among those uh, who have engaged in assisted suicides, uh, the perceived burden on the family, friends, and caregivers uh, was one of the major reasons for that, along with isolation and loneliness. Well, taking a look back to this day in history, 1914, transcontinental telephone service in the United States becomes operational with the first test conversation between New York and San Francisco. 1921, Adolf Hitler becomes the leader of the National Socialist German Workers Party. On this day in history, 1958, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signs the National Aeronautics and Space Act, creating NASA. Again, National Aeronautics and Space Act, creating NASA. 1981, Britain's Prince Charles marries Lady Diana Spencer in a ceremony at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. The couple would divorce in 1996, which just goes to show you pomp, circumstances, a huge ceremony doesn't guarantee a lasting marriage. If we would invest half the energy and time and resource, I suppose, in the marriage as that we do oftentimes in weddings, we might be better off. I don't know, just thinking. 1974, Gerald R. Ford becomes the first U.S. president to visit the site of the Nazi concentration camp Auschwitz. 1997, on this day in history, members of Congress from both parties embrace compromise legislation designed to balance the budget while cutting taxes. Wow, embrace compromise legislation. I remember those old days when both parties had the capacity and the will to do that. 2004, Senator John Kerry accepts the Democrats' presidential nomination at the party's convention in Boston with a military salute and the declaration, I'm John Kerry, and I'm reporting for duty. 
I had to pause to salute just then. I just felt compelled. Well, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Monday rolled out Republicans' plan for another coronavirus relief package, which would send a $1,200, a second $1,200 payment to most Americans. While the amount of the payment includes uh, in the HEALS Act, the Health Economic Assistance Liability Protections and School Act, is the same as the CARES Act. There are some key changes that would expand eligibility to an estimated 26 million Americans, according to one estimate from the Tax Foundation. The HEALS Act attempts to rectify a frequent criticism of the first $2.2 trillion relief package. Under the CARES Act, Americans only received an extra $500 for their dependents if they were under the age of 17, including, among others, millions of college students and disabled dependents, or rather dependents. But the latest proposal modified the stimulus check so that families with dependents over the age of 17 will be able to receive that extra $500. For instance, a married couple with two children who received up to um, $3,400 under the HEALS uh, Heals Act. Unlike under the CARES Act, where the additional $500 was limited to taxpayers with a dependent child under 17, the additional $500 is now provided to taxpayers with dependents of any age, says the summary of that proposal. It's not clear whether the HEALS Act has a limit on how many dependent payments a single household can receive. The House uh, passed HEROES Act in May, capped them at three for an additional $1,500, meaning the maximum amount of money one household could receive was $6,000. So that is um, currently in the works. I thought this was rather interesting, particularly in our current climate. A North Korean defector who calls himself a victim of brainwash education explained what shocked him most when he first stepped on American soil. I believe they were full of hostility, but they were just so nice, he says, of Americans. Kim Hyuk uh, spoke to the YouTube channel Dimple, which shares sword videos involving North Koreans earlier this month. He grew up in the Hermit Kim and went to college in Pyongyang before defecting. They taught us to fight Americans till the end. Uh, Kim, who now lives in Seoul, South Korea, said, adding that Americans are considered street dogs or wolves depicted as people who torture and kill in North Korean education, which he found to be totally wrong. Americans are so nice, funny, and open to anything, he says. I was so surprised when I first went to California. What I uh, was taught in North Korea was an image of the coldness and wickedness of Americans. He said he was walking in the morning and a man jogged by and said, hi. And he started realizing that everyone actually said hi on the street and that it was part of American culture. So there are Mexicans, Chinese, Koreans, so many people made up one community, he said. I was just so surprised by the diversity. And the landscape of America was stunning to Kim as well, who said visiting the Grand Canyon felt like going to Mars. And he was amazed at how big um, Texas was. He added that he was surprised there wasn't any public transportation in California. And he noted the subways in New York City are really bad and stink. (laughs) Because of what North Korean media presented, he said he was led to believe that Iraq was going to win the Iraq war in 2003. I was like, Iraq is amazing. They're going to win, he said. And I found out America wiped them out in 57 days. So I fixed my thoughts, he said. Well, on a lighter note, he said the U.S. is a place where you can gain weight, noting he put on almost 10 pounds during his visit. Kim is working to bring freedom to his home country as a peace ambassador for one young world. He's studying political science and diplomacy at Korea University in South Korea. It's a rather interesting perspective from someone who's just come to visit And when you consider this particular moment in time, what impression would you have visiting uh, certain areas in the United States, turning on the television and listening to the commentary and the banter among Americans? What would be the impression if that were to have taken place today? It is sad to consider where we are 
but I'm hopeful that we can rise again. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Dr. Derwin Gray. He's the author of The Good Life, What Jesus Teaches About Finding True Happiness. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, the truth is every one of us wants to be happy. We spend money on it. We spend time and energy chasing after what we call the good life. And we run ourselves into physical, mental, and emotional exhaustion on the way. But what if happiness were, well, what if we're all striving for what isn't really happiness at all, or at least the happiness we were created for. There was a recent World Happiness Report, and it revealed that Americans are unhappier than they've ever been. America, for example, also dropped lower than it's ever been before in the ranking of the world's happiest countries. We're pursuing it. We're not finding it. Well, my next guest, Dr. Derwin Gray, he well understands the pursuit of the good life. He spent years trying to find lasting happiness, only to discover it was like chasing his own shadow. In his new book, The Good Life, he explores the path to true happiness, a life lived with Jesus, embracing the Beatitudes found in the Gospel of Matthew. And he believes that as you walk through these verses, you're going to discover a new life-giving rhythm that cultivates a flourishing, happy, transformative life. Now, Dr. Derwin Gray is the founding and lead pastor of Transformation Church, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational mission community in Indian Land, South Carolina, just south of Charlotte, North Carolina. He uh, met his wife while at university. He played professional football in the NFL for five years with the Indianapolis Colts and Carolina Panthers, and I have to say I'm a little excited about that. In 2008, he graduated from Southern Evangelical Seminary, magna cum laude, with a uh, Master of Divinity with a concentration on apologetics and While there, he was mentored by a renowned theologian and philosopher, Dr. Norman Geisler. In 2018, he received his Master of Ministry in the New Testament in context at Northern Seminary. And in 2015, he was awarded an honorary doctorate from Southern Evangelical Seminary. I am just thrilled to have Dr. Derwin Gray join us to talk about the good life. Welcome. Well, thank you so much. After hearing that incredible bio, man, I need to find (laughs) out who this guy Derwin is and let my kids know about him. (laughs) Yeah, you really do. I was impressed. I know you will be too. (laughs) Well, let's talk a little bit about your... thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Let's talk a little bit about your history because you certainly are an example of someone who pursued the, uh, the good life and in many ways found it, but it was not sufficient to satisfy the longing of the human heart that God puts into each of us. Tell us a little bit of your story. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and I grew up on the west side. And uh, when you grew up where I grew up at, uh, being poor was normal. It, it was just the part of what it was. Uh, my mom was 16 when she was pregnant with me, and my dad was uh, 17. Both my mom and dad uh, struggled with various issues, and so my grandparents primarily raised me. And at about age 13, um, that, for, that was the time when football became more than just a game. Um, it actually became a way out for me. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't have a Christian background. We didn't pray together. We didn't go to church. So I was unchurched. And the human heart is going to worship something, um, even atheist worship. It may be knowledge. It may be uh, self-reliance, whatever it may be. Worship is simply finding affirmation, identity, and purpose. And so for me, football gave me that. If I played good, I was affirmed. It told me who I was. I was a football player. It gave me purpose. 
get a football scholarship because there's no way my family could have paid for it. So I worked really hard, ended up winning a state championship, became a team captain in high school, eventually got a football scholarship to Brigham Young University. And second semester, my freshman year, uh, I met this young lady playing basketball on January 15th, 1990. (laughs) And uh, we've been together ever since. We've been together for 30 years and married for 28 years. We actually got married in college. So I had a all-American college career, and then I ended up getting drafted to the National Football League by the Indianapolis Colts. I still remember it like it was yesterday. My wife and I were in married student housing. ESPN is on, and I hear my name called on ESPN, and I think, okay, I made it. This is going to solve all of my problems, the happiness I want. Uh, This is going to help my family with dysfunction, get help. Uh, It's just going to make everything better. Uh, but three years into it, <clears throat> I looked in the mirror and, and I said, I said uh, there's got to be more. And here's why. One, no matter how much financial uh, success I had, no matter how much fame I had, I could not get over my father not being in my life. And so uh, I couldn't forgive him. And I couldn't forgive myself for things I had done. Um, I also lived with incredible fear because I knew one day football would be over and then what would I do? Uh, I didn't have the capacity to love my wife the way she deserved to be loved. And so I had this huge existential crisis at that moment that there's got to be more. Like I felt like I had been tricked or set up. Uh, but in mm-hmm. God's goodness, I had, a, I had a teammate. His name was Steve Grant, but his nickname was The Naked Preacher. Because literally after practice, he would take a shower, dry off, wrap a towel around his waist, and he would get his Bible, and he'd begin to ask my teammates, do you know Jesus? And I'm totally unchurched. I had no clue what he was saying. And I asked the veterans on the team, I'm like, what's up with this guy? And they said, don't pay no attention to him. That's the naked preacher. And in my mind, I'm going, man, this guy is literally walking around naked, half naked with a Bible, asking people about Jesus. It was the strangest thing. But one day... I'm sitting in my locker and I feel a tap on my back and I turn around and it's the naked preacher. And he asked me a question that changed my life. He said, Derwin, do you know Jesus? And that began a five-year relationship as he and I would talk, as I would watch his life. And on August 2nd, 1997, it was my fifth year in the NFL training camp with the Indianapolis Colts. We're at Anderson, Indiana, and I remember after lunchtime, it was like I just had this huge hole in my soul, and I walked slowly back to my dorm room, and I got in there, and I picked up the phone, and I called my wife, and I said, I want to be more committed to you, and then I said, I want to be committed to Jesus, and I literally felt when I was born again, like I really felt the divine of love. I felt his forgiveness. I felt his grace. And I fell head over heels in love with Jesus because my whole life was, I was performing for the love of a father who, who was never around. Everything I did as a football player was if you play good, you get a scholarship, you escape your environment. If you play good, you can go to the NFL. It was always performance, performance. And for the first time, there was someone who said, I see your performance in life and it says sinner, but I love you anyway. And I'm going to mm-hmm. forgive you and give you a new life. And so my wife came to faith about six months before me. And that just began us on this journey 
of growing in our love for Christ, but specifically the book, The Good Life, was birthed out of in 2014, as I was counseling and mentoring and discipling and talking to people who didn't know Christ, there was just so much unhappiness. And the common theme was this, whether a person was a Christian or non-Christian, regardless of their age or socioeconomic status, they were not happy. And I said, what does Jesus say about happiness in hiding in plain sight in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts with what's traditionally called the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, there is seven characteristics that describe a blessed or happy person. The first Beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirits, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that word blessed is the Greek word makaros, and it literally means happy. And so Jesus is describing what a happy person looks like. And it just hit me. It was an epiphany like, oh my goodness, the happiness that we long for, Jesus is is actually inviting us to experience it, but it's not a happiness that we think. It's actually bigger, it's actually better, and it's actually more life-giving. So if I could summarize it, it would be this, this way. Happiness, according to Jesus, is not about good things always happening to you. It's about God actually making us good. And by becoming good, we become good for the world. Happiness Mm. is not a feeling. Happiness is rooted in God's redemptive purpose for our lives. Mm. We're talking this afternoon with Dr. Derwin Gray. He's the author of The Good Life. We're going uh, going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. We will be right back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Derwin Gray. He's the founding and lead pastor of Transformation Church. It's a multi-ethnic, multi-generational mission community in Indian Land, South Carolina. He also played for the NFL for about five years and has written this book about the good life, which is uh, explaining what God, what Jesus had to say in his ministry about what happiness really is, because for so many of us, it is elusive. Now, one of the things, one of the points that you make is that the happiness that Jesus spoke about in that great Sermon on the Mount is very different from what we might have uh, might have expected. We assume that the accumulation of wealth, that popularity, uh, that health, that beauty, that these are the kinds of things from which we can derive happiness. Jesus had some very different things to say about it. He did. He, he did. And and what I would say is that the happiness that Jesus is offering goes deeper than skin, that it is skin deep and it goes to our souls, Mm -hmm. that happiness is more about becoming the person you were meant to be. And sadly, even for Christians, our version of happiness is not much different than an unbeliever's version of happiness. But as we see in the Beatitudes, Jesus is inviting us into a happiness that's not determined by circumstances but it's actually rooted in the transformative work that he does in us. So therefore, COVID-19 cannot steal our happiness. Uh, Civil unrest, racial injustice cannot steal our happiness. Our happiness now is founded in something so much more transcendent and more beautiful, and we actually become 
beautiful people. Like when you think about the Beatitudes, to be poor in spirit means I'm utterly dependent on God the way I'm dependent upon oxygen to fill my lungs, hmm. to be poor in spirit and, and, and to be a, a, a peacemaker that, that we're moving into the world to make peace. Peace is not passive. Peace is active. Peace looks like the cross. It's sacrificial. It's costly. It's life giving. Um, and so when we look at the Beatitudes, God is making us beautiful like Jesus. And so he's inviting us into this process of grace. And he's saying, smiling is fun. Good times are fun. But I want to enter you into something that's so much deeper and better that you will become better and you will become the version of yourself that you were created to be. That's what true happiness is. Mm. You write that happiness and holiness are two sides of the same coin. Explain what you mean by that. I think you've alluded to that with what you've just described, but explain what you mean by that. Yeah, so when you look at the Beatitudes, when you look at the seven characteristics, they're actually a portrait of Jesus himself. And theologically, when a person comes to faith, it's, it's called sanctification. And the simple way of saying that is slowly but progressively, as we yield to God by faith, he makes us more and more like Christ. And so when you look at the Beatitudes, it's a portrait of Christ and it's who God is moving us to become. And so as we become poor in spirit, as we become uh, pure in heart, as we become peacemakers and merciful, as we become these things that Jesus puts in us, we also become holy. And the term holiness just means to be separate. So God brings us into his family. He separates us from darkness, brings us into the light, and then we begin to live as children of light. So our holiness and our happiness are two sides of the same coin. And so the best way I can say it is this way. The more we allow Jesus to transform us, the happier we'll become. And the happier we are is because Jesus is transforming us. But the happiness is not a feeling. The happiness is rooted in God's redemptive purpose to make us like Jesus Christ lookalikes. Amen. Amen. You write about the fact that believers uh, oftentimes misunderstand the Beatitudes. Uh, Your book really addresses that. How have we misunderstood what he was teaching at that time and the work that he is intends to do in us so that we experience that full um, expression of happiness that you've described? Well, I think, first of all, we often don't read them, sadly. Um, And unfortunately, in this time of of COVID and other things, we are submerging ourselves in Netflix and Amazon Mm. Prime. Don't get me wrong. There's some shows I like on Netflix and Amazon Prime, but I, but I think Jesus wants to have the prime of our time. And if we were just to take some time and to soak in the Beatitudes and what I did at the end of the book is I wrote a 30 day happiness challenge, which is simply this, read the Beatitudes for 30 days straight. What I do now before I go to bed just about every night is from memory, I read over in my mind, in my soul, Psalm 23, as well as the Beatitudes, because when I go to bed, I want that situated and saturated in my soul. And if Jesus is saying, I'm going to teach you how to be happy, shouldn't we listen? That's right. And he is literally inviting us. It's like he's inviting us for morning coffee. And he wants to mentor us. He wants to teach us that, hey, 
Um, the happiness you're looking for is like playing in mud puddles compared to what I want to give you. And let me ask you about one of the Beatitudes in particular. As you pointed out, the, most of our Bibles read, Bless, blessed are those, and then it, it uh, continues on from there. One of them, as you've paraphrased it, is happy are the sad. Now, sometimes we have a difficulty. Yeah. How does that make sense with happiness? Because you translate that word happy. Happy are the sad. How do we live that out, and what is he teaching us? Yes, yeah, so Jesus, in Matthew 5, 4, 4, says, blessed are, the porn, or, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And Jesus is quoting Isaiah 62, which comes from Isaiah 66, 61, 6. Or, I'm sorry, Isaiah 61, verse 1, is the messianic mandate. Uh, I came to preach the good news to the poor, the blind, the captive. Isaiah 62 says, and, you know, and to those who mourn, I'm going to comfort. And so mourning is Jesus is allowing us to tap into what breaks God's heart. So Jesus came. He was sent from God the Father. Jesus comes, and he comes because God's heart is broken. God is mourning the condition of humanity. He's mourning the condition of this world. And so what happens is, is when we begin to mourn, uh, there are three things that happen. First, we gain solidarity with Jesus. Jesus is a man of sorrows that on the cross, he took upon all sin, all pain, all brokenness for all, for all time. Number two is when we begin to mourn injustice, we begin to love people who are even suffering in ways that we're not. And I think that's one of the big things in the church that's hurting right now is for so long we've only uh, cared about things that affect us. And to love my neighbors, I love myself means I'm to love and care about people and things that don't affect me. And then thirdly, when we mourn our own sin, we tap into God's heart and his redemption. And in the West, the United States of America, we're so much like self-help and and do your best, go sweat the rest, and go, 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 that we don't have time to sit and mourn. Mm. But Jesus literally tells us, happier those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so when we begin to mourn the things that break God's heart, God begins to mend our hearts so that we can go into the world to be wounded healers ourselves. And also, it slows us down to gain awareness that the world is so much bigger than just my problem. That's right. Think about this. Jesus was not affected by sin. He was perfect in every way. Yet he came to us to affect us with his grace. And to love my neighbors, I love myself means this, that if injustice anywhere means injustice everywhere. And we say this at Transformation Church, where I pastor and I said this in the good, good life, treat every person like Jesus died for them because he did. did. And so That's Jesus right. died for them, and that means I'm mourning, my love for people increase. Oh, that's so good. Now, we're just about out of time, but I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the happiness manifesto that helps us to experience this happiness that Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that he so desperately longs for us to enjoy. What is the happiness manifesto? Yeah, so with the happiness manifesto, that was at the end of the book, and yeah. I just put back on my football player personality, and I'm like, <laughs> you, you know what, guys? Every day you read this happiness manifesto, like I'm a football coach, and here's the playbook 
The happiness manifesto is simply affirming biblical truths at the end of the day that, that we choose Jesus, we choose his kingdom, we choose his ways, thus we choose happiness. And this is not something we do, it's what God does in us. So yes. this daily affirmation is like a battle cry to go into the world unleashed with the love of God saying, I want to show you what the good life is. Well, once again, the title of the book is The Good Life. You should know there's a leader kit. So if you want to use this as a resource in a small group, this is a great resource. The Good Life, What Jesus Teaches About Finding True Happiness. The forward is by Beth Moore and Dr. Derwin Gray is the author. The book is published by Broadman and Holman. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time and I appreciate the book. You uh, you tell your daughter she was right in inspiring you and encouraging you to write this. You are a writer. <laughs> Thank you so much. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, and we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Well, Star Wars is very famous in the minds of those who've enjoyed that uh, series, but space wars and might uh, soon leave the realm of science fiction and become a reality. The U.S.'s newest military branch, the Space Force, cautioned publicly for the first time that Moscow had undertaken a, uh, at least two concerning anti-satellite weapons tests in recent months in a potential bid to develop on-orbit efficiency that could dangerously hinder the U.S.'s heavy dependence on space-based Systems. Well, on the 15th of July, Russia injected a new object into orbit from Cosmos 2543, the U.S. Space Force said in a statement. Russia released this this object in proximity to another Russian satellite, which was um, in, uh, inconsistent with the system's stated mission as an inspector satellite. And while Russia's defense ministry dismissed the allegation, it is not the first time the Pentagon has said such an incident occurred. General W.J. Raymond, commander of the U.S. Space Command and U.S. Space Force Chief of uh, Space Operations, further highlighted that the Russian satellite system used to conduct this on-orbit weapons test is the same uh, they raised concerns about earlier this year when Russia maneuvered near a U.S. government satellite as well. This is further evidence of Russia continuing and their efforts to continue to develop and test space-based systems and consistent with the Kremlin's published military doctrine to employ weapons that hold the United States and allied space assets at risk. The proclamation that these satellites are part of a space-based anti-satellite weapons system is even more significant given the Cosmos 2542 had moved into a position to shadow a U.S. KH-11 spy satellite publicly identified only as U.S. 245 in January, the drive's war zone analysis pointed out. Well, a month earlier, the U.S. Um, satellite was forced to move its own orbit to avoid a collision with the notorious 2543, which the U.S. Space Force believes uh, was also trailing the U.S. asset. Then in April this year, Space Force also raised red flags that the Kremlin had conducted testing of an unspecified direct Ascent anti-satellite missile, also known as DSASAT, from its uh, base in northern Russia. While no targets were deployed in either April or July experiments, the pattern, coupled with the notion of two Russian satellites following an American spy satellite, is enough to stir some anxieties. 
The U.S. State Department underscored the uh, matter both in 2018 and in 2020, saying that Russian satellite behaviors were inconsistent with their stated mission and that these satellites deployed characteristics of space-based weapons and characterizing the behavior of uh, hypocritical and concerning. Eugene Galtz, an associate professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, also emphasized that, if accurate, this is no small matter. We rely in very large measure upon those satellites, not the spy satellites necessarily, but the uh, functions of many of the others. So this is a very serious thing. It was uh, said at the time the Space Force was developed that uh, the uh, the heavens, if you will, will eventually be where uh, wars erupt and dominance in that area will determine dominance on the ground. So this is a very significant uh, pronouncement made earlier today. Well, the Supreme Court uh, decided to allow Nevada's governor to favor Caesar's Palace over Calvary Chapel. It was one bad decision. Well, it was a mistake. Two is a pattern, say observers. In late May, Chief Justice John Roberts sided with the Supreme Court's four liberal members in South Bay United Pentecostal Church versus Newsom to deny a request from a California church that it be allowed to operate under the same conditions as similar secular businesses. The chief's decision was a mistake. And unfortunately, late Friday evening, he established a pattern. In Calvary Chapel, Dayton, uh, Valley versus Sisolak Roberts, um, Roberts again joined the Supreme Court's for liberal members to deny a request from a Nevada church that it too be allowed to operate under the same conditions as similar secular businesses. So what exactly did the church ask for? That it be allowed to hold services at 50% capacity rather than having the state arbitrarily cap the attendance at 50 people, regardless of the size of the church building. Restaurants, bars, gyms, and even casinos operate under this more permissive rule. And while the five justices in the majority did not write an opinion to explain their decision, as is uh, common in these type of cases, this troubling ruling prompted three sharp dissents from the court's four conservative members, Justice Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh. In late May, the chief justice was clearly troubled by the fact that the case came to the Supreme Court during a pandemic, and it clearly weighed heavily on his mind. There he wrote that the Constitution principally entrusts elected officials to deal with health crises and other areas fraught with medical and scientific uncertainties. But as Alito and Kavanaugh pointed out, that broad dis uh, discretion is less defensive uh, defensible in this particular case. More time has passed, and the Nevada governor treats similar activities differently based only on whether they are religious in nature or secular. There is no pandemic exception to the Constitution. Each dissent made compelling points. In his dissent, Alito said the Constitution guarantees the free exercise of religion. It says nothing about the freedom to play craps or blackjack, to feed tokens into a slot machine, or to engage in any other game of chance. But the governor of Nevada apparently has different priorities, claiming virtually unbounded power to restrict constitutional rights during COVID-19 pandemic. He has issued a directive that severely limits attendance at religious services. A church, synagogue or mosque, regardless of its size, may not admit more than 50 persons, but casinos and certain other favored facilities may admit 50 percent of their capacity, their maximum occupancy. And in the case of gigantic Las Vegas casinos, this means that thousands of patrons are allowed. That Nevada would discriminate in favor of the powerful gaming industry and its employees may not come as a surprise, but the court's willingness to allow discrimination is disappointing. We have a duty to defend the Constitution, even a public health emergency, during a public health emergency. It does not absolve us of that responsibility. Kavanaugh fully joined Alito's dissents and, uh, dissent rather, and fully added 
To be clear, a state's closing or reopening plan may subject uh, religious organizations to the same limits as secular organizations. And in light of the devastating COVID-19 pandemic, those limits may be very strict. But a state may not impose strict limits on places of worship and looser limits on restaurants, bars, casinos and gyms, at least without sufficient justification for the differential treatment of religion. Kavanaugh also went to great lengths to explain how this case fits into the Supreme Court's broader religion jurisprudence. And in fact, his thoughtful opinion may give the most uh, insight into how the justices would frame further and future cases dealing with restrictions or burdens on religious activity. It is uh, most relevant moving forward. Representative Jim Jordan uh, tore into the heads of some of the country's largest tech companies today, blasting the leaders of Google, Facebook, and other tech giants as out-to-get conservatives. While speaking during a remote House Judiciary Committee meeting on antitrust law, Jordan rattled off a list of instances where major tech and social media companies either censored or removed posts from conservative lawmakers or thinkers before voicing his concern about the tech role in November's upcoming election. I'll cut right to the chase, Jordan said. Big Tech is out to get conservative. That's a fact. Well, he focused much of his ire on Twitter, where leaders, um, whose leader, rather, was not present at the hearing after the company shadow banned his account in 2018. The company told Jordan that it was a glitch in its algorithm that caused him to be blocked. If I had a nickel for every time I heard it was just a glitch, I would be as rich as our witnesses, but I'd be um, all right. Hmm. Jordan's comments, which came during opening statements, marked the beginning of the grilling of the four big tech CEOs, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, Sundar Pichai of Google and Tim Cook of Apple took during the hearing from both Democrat and Republican lawmakers. The four tech CEOs command corporations with gold plated brands, millions or even billions of customers and a combined value greater than the entire German economy. One of them, Bezos, is the world's richest individual. Zuckerberg is the fourth-ranked billionaire. Critics question whether the uh, companies stifle competition and innovation, raise prices for consumers, and pose a danger to society. We'll have more to report on that as the hearing was ongoing at the time we recorded this program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk. Well, actually, we're going to continue taking a look at the news. So there you have it. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Oregon Health Authority on Tuesday reported 342 new coronavirus cases in Oregon and 14 deaths. That covered a span of several days, marking a record for reported fatalities since the pandemic hit Oregon five months ago. Now, it marks a record, but because it covers a span of several days, I'm, I'm not sure if that's entirely accurate, or at least it's somewhat misleading. Among the deaths disclosed on Tuesday was a 26-year-old Yamhill County man, the youngest Oregonian whose death has been reported by state officials as at least partially linked to COVID-19, which again raises questions about what constitutes a COVID-19 death. Um, This 26-year-old, as I look at the Oregon Health Authority page, um, it says that the death certificate listed COVID-19 disease as a cause of death or as a significant condition that contributed to his death. So is it a COVID-19 death or not? It's, you know, they've chosen to put it in that category, but you wonder how many others um, might raise the similar question. Well, the record number of reported deaths came one day after the state officials disclosed zero fatalities. The newly reported deaths occurred between the 10th of July 
and the 27th, so this is a 17-day span or 7-day span, raising Oregon's total fatality count to 303. As we surpass 300 deaths related to COVID-19, including the 14 reported today, I wish to extend sincere condolences on behalf of everyone at OHA to the families who have lost a loved one to this disease, Patrick Allen, the Health Authority director said in a statement, it is a stark reminder of the work all Oregonians need to do to bring this pandemic under control. Together, we can slow this disease and prevent this terrible loss of life, end quote. Well, the Oregonian is uh, tracking coronavirus deaths by week using the date of death instead of the date of uh, the death was reported by the health authority. More people died between the 12th and the 25th of July than in any two-week period since the pandemic's arrival. And those numbers could continue to grow as the state's disclosure often lags. Meanwhile, the state's daily uh, case count of confirmed or presumed infections averaged uh, about 325 over the past week, just below the record of 344 on the 20th of this month. Disclosure is uh, of the uh, grim death toll came on the same day that Governor Kate Brown announced new benchmarks reopening school classrooms this fall. And again, the youngest uh, to which COVID-19 was attributed was 26. Well, in recent weeks, President Trump has been excoriating or rather been excoriated by Democrats and teachers unions for demanding that schools reopen this fall. He stands accused of ignoring the science and putting America's 57 million school children in mortal danger. Yet now the CDC has issued new guidelines for opening schools. The outcry from Democrats and teachers unions has only become more hysterical. It is critically important for our public health to open schools this fall. That's a quote from CDC Director Robert Redfield. Um, arguing that school closures have disrupted normal ways of life for children and parents, and they have had negative health consequences on our youth. CDC is prepared to work with K-12 schools to safely reopen while protecting the most vulnerable, end quote. Well, having previously stated that he would absolutely send his grandchildren back to school, Redfield's statement is also in line with the 67,000-member American Academy of Pediatrics, which last month issued a public statement strongly advocating for the reopening of schools. Now, the wisdom of the CDC and the AAP's position is obvious to anyone who has bothered to look at the data on the coronavirus and children. According to the CDC, as of the 17th of July, children and adolescents account for under 7% of COVID-19 cases and less than 0.1% of COVID-19-related deaths. In other words, less than one one-thousandth of COVID-19 deaths are children and adolescents. Scientists don't uh, know why yet. The data also show that even when infected with COVID-19, children rarely die from it. Children rarely transmit the uh, disease, rather, to others either. So teachers are at very low risk of infection from children, perhaps more so from one another. Yet um, the teachers unions continue to be science deniers fighting vigorously against a return to in-person schooling. Well, that doesn't, of course, keep them from making uh, um, extortionist demands from an additional or rather an additional $116 billion in federal education funding, more than the U.S. spent to rebuild Europe after World War II to reduce class sizes, reduce work hours, ban new private schools, to defunding the police, Medicare for all, and new taxes on the rich. So while they're not in the classroom, many teachers in the unions are very, very busy. It's worth noting that the sexual exploitation of women and children has likely increased with the pandemic, experts say. Groups such as Polaris and the International Justice Mission work to fight human trafficking and to free the estimated 40 million victims of modern-day slavery. Their work has um, not slowed down during the global pandemic. Sadly, experts say the virus is leading to an increase in violence against women and children. 
Buyers are getting more violent, more aggressive, trying to pay less. Robert Beiser, who's a strategic initiatives director for Polaris, speaking to the Daily Signal in a phone interview. He operates the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which exists to connect victims of sex or labor trafficking with resources to help them find a way out of the abuse. The hotline also serves as a tip line to prevent further trafficking cases. The hotline has received more than 48,000 calls or texts from individuals asking for help this year alone. Polaris has documented more than 63,000 cases of human trafficking within the U.S. since 2007. Beiser said the coronavirus actually has created a climate for human traffickers to exploit the most vulnerable. A recent study conducted by his group found that crisis trafficking situations rose by 40 percent in April this year compared to the numbers of April of 2019. The real concern for most anti-trafficking professionals is when people are out of work or unable to work, when they are not stably housed, when they don't feel that they can get safety when they need it, that is when trafficking flourishes and trafficking is flourishing. By the way, in June, the State Department released its 2020 Trafficking in Persons report in which Secretary of State Mike Pompeo wrote, while urgency has always marked the fight against human trafficking, the implications of the COVID-19 pandemic have magnified the need for all stakeholders to work together to fight more than ever. Mm. Well, if you needed another reason to avoid coronavirus at all costs, here's one. Skeptics of the disease and the necessity of shutting down the economy to stop its spread have focused on the fact that most coronavirus cases have been mild or even asymptomatic, comparing COVID-19 to the flu. But a recent study of 100 recovered coronavirus patients reveals 78 of them now have lasting cardiovascular damage, even though a vast majority of them had mild cases of COVID-19 in the first place. The study, published on Monday in um, JAMA Cardiology details the results of cardiac MRI exams of 100 recovered coronavirus patients. 28 of them received oxygen supplementation while fighting the virus, while just two were on ventilators. But 78 of them still had cardiovascular abnormalities after recovery, with 60 of them showing ongoing uh, myocardial inflammation. The study showed, well, these conditions appear to be independent of case severity and pre-existing conditions, though JAMA researchers uh, note these findings need a larger study. President Trump and his administration have tried to say Americans' uh, low cardio uh, coronavirus mortality rate proves the country is beating the virus, but not only COVID-19 mortality rate um, is it uh, not as low as uh, Trump had originally said. The study proves there are far more consequences to catching coronavirus than just dying of it. Now, it's not clear if this is long-term, if it's short-term, uh, if it's permanent. Uh, again, we don't know. This was a relatively small study, but a rather interesting thing to consider, particularly if you fall in that category where heart issues um, are issues for you. Well, the Centers for Disease Control's uh, director, Robert Redfield, testified in a Buck Institute webinar that suicide and drug overdose have surpassed the death rate of COVID-19. Redfield argued that lockdowns and lack of public schooling constituted a disproportionately negative impact on young people's mental health. We're seeing, sadly, for greater, uh, far greater suicides now than we are deaths from COVID-19. We're seeing far greater deaths from drug overdose than uh, are above excess that we had as background than we were seeing of deaths of COVID-19. Roughly 146,000 people have died from COVID-19 or COVID-related causes in the U.S. The most recent uh, publicized federal data records, uh, rather records 48,000 deaths from suicide and at least 1.4 million attempts in 2018. 
In 2019, almost 71,000 people died from drug overdoses. So the numbers are certainly up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. We'll talk about what's happening in Portland, an agreement that's been struck between the feds and Portland officials. We'll see what happens next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the pattern was much the same. Fireworks, then tear gas. It was night 62 in Portland. It saw more clashes, and the president entered into talks to pull out federal officers. For Portland on Tuesday witnessed its 62nd consecutive night of protests since the death of George Floyd, with hundreds of demonstrators once again gathering by the federal courthouse and some tossing fireworks, prompting federal officers to launch tear gas to cause them to disperse. Well, the conflict has become a routine occurrence, and several speakers and activists across the street at Lounsdale Park urged uh, the crowds not to engage with federal law enforcement because by doing so, they argue, it only further distracts from the Black Lives Matter movement. Refreshing to hear that from within the crowd. One 22-year-old Portlander told people beginning to gather along the fence outside the courthouse at about 9.45, if you really want to respect black lives, if you really want to respect Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, you'll listen to the movement instead of antagonizing. Again, a breath of fresh air. A crowd of several hundred people would eventually gather along Southwest 3rd Avenue, mostly concentrated across from the Mark O. Hatfield U.S. Courthouse and the Multnomah County Justice Center. Federal officers at the courthouse periodically issued warnings to people not to damage the fence. After light bulbs were tossed over and lights were uh, shown at the building, federal officers deployed tear gas. They used a hose to spray the sidewalks uh, by the fence. They stirred up. Uh, the agents on the ground from um, nights before, the chemical agents, according to the Oregonian. Well, that's the same fence that Portland Commissioner Chloe Udaley said the city of Portland is fining the federal government $500 for every 15 minutes it blocks a bike lane on Southwest 3rd Avenue. Earlier in the day, Udaley, who uh, runs the city's transportation bureau, said the bill was now $192,000 and counting. Now, she realizes that the federal bureau doesn't have its own money. She's uh, billing them. And they will, if they actually pay it, she is billing them uh, money that belongs to taxpayers, not only in Oregon, but certainly in Oregon, in Portland and across the country. So nonetheless, things continued pretty much as they have every night. Uh, what we did learn was that Oregon's uh, governor made an announcement earlier today that there is going to be a phased withdrawal of federal officers. Now, if you follow the logic that city leaders have been telling us, once these federal agents are gone, there's not going to be any more graffiti. There's not going to be any more windows being broken. There's not going to be an assault on the federal courthouse. We're not going to see any um, aggressive action at that point forward, because they're the ones who are, if you follow the logic, they're the ones who are responsible for all of that. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if federal agents weren't the ones holding the spray cans that defaced buildings all throughout downtown Portland. All of that's going to end because, as our city officials are telling us, if you follow the logic, once these federal agents are gone, it's all just going to be peaceful protesting and the more radical element is simply going to move on. Well, the feds will start pulling out of Portland on Thursday in a phased approach, we're told, and state troopers instead will help back up officers uh, from the Federal Protective Service to safeguard the Mark O. Hatfield Courthouse. 
That's according to the governor. She called the federal officers an occupying force, which is a gross overstatement that the governor should know better than to use. That has refused accountability and brought strife to our community in a statement because we didn't have any strife before they arrived, she would argue. Well, acting Homeland Security uh, Secretary Chad Wolf in a separate announcement said that he had been in talks with the governor in the last day and agreed to a joint plan to end the violent activity in Portland directed at federal properties and law enforcement. So, They are withdrawing, but with the understanding that um, other officials will protect federal assets. Now, if that isn't the case, they're simply going to return. Well, the development comes as the city marks its 62nd day of demonstrations since the 25th of May. Thousands of people have taken to the streets to demand police reforms, decry police brutality and systematic racism, when in fact much of the attention has been diverted to the violent exchange that has taken place uh, early in late at night, early in the morning on these um, latter 62 days. Hmm. Well, there are some pretty fast-moving developments in the 2020 election season. There are some new election fraud cases. Those who constantly claim there is no election fraud, uh, fraud rather, um, were uh, no doubt chagrined to learn that the former uh, Democratic congressman, Uh, Michael Ozzie Myers was indicted on the 21st by the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, William McSwain. Myers was charged with ballot stuffing, bribery, and obstruction of justice. It's alleged that he bribed a Philadelphia polling official to stuff ballot boxes with fraudulent votes in 2014, 15, and 16 primaries for Democratic candidates running for local, state, and federal offices, including judicial offices. Uh, Some of the fast-moving developments leading up to the 2020 election. What we don't know yet is uh, whether any of the candidates who hired Myers knew what he was doing or that the consulting fees they were paying Myers were being used to buy fraudulent votes. Uh, And then for those who think it's a good idea to trust your ballot and your vote to a postal service that regularly delivers your neighbor's mail to you, you may want to read the reports of the U.S. Postal Service's Inspector General on the problems encountered in the April 7th primary in Wisconsin. This included over 3,500 Um, absentee ballots never delivered to voters, as well as hundreds of other ballots mailed back to election officials by voters that were never postmarked by postal authorities, making it impossible for election officials to determine if they have been uh, mailed in time to be counted. Um, Then check out the latest report from the Public Interest Legal Foundation that analyzed official reports published by the U.S. Election Assistance Commission in the last four federal elections. More than 2 million absentee ballots were misdelivered. 1.3 million were rejected by election officials. Over 28 million were categorized as unknown by state election officials. Uh, They don't know what happened to the ballots after they um, handed them over to the U.S. Postal Service to deliver. Uh, and if you are um, going to your grocery store and uh, to get pharmaceuticals and other stuff, why can't you vote safely in person is a question being asked by those who are concerned about these problems. Well, those are just some of the fast-moving developments leading up to the 2020 election, which leads me to uh, to fear that this will be a contested election, that there will be reason to question the outcome uh, and I'm not talking about Donald Trump questioning whether or not he was duly elected, but I see that there are going to be questions about whether or not uh, ballots were in areas where one candidate or the other was deemed the victor. If uh, ballots were counted, delivered, if there was fraudulent and uh, all that stuff that goes along with it. So watching all of this and anticipating what's uh, what's going to happen is um, 
really going to be something to behold. Meanwhile, the morning after President Trump abruptly announced that he was canceling the celebratory portions of the Republican National Convention scheduled to be held in Jacksonville, Florida, the week of August the 24th, GOP officials outlined how some of the remaining aspects of the CONFAB will work. The Republican National Committee now says that a few hundred delegates will be in Charlotte, North Carolina on the 24th of next month for the convention business, which will include the formal nomination of the president. As of last month, the delegates convening in Charlotte will not be voting uh, on the 2020 party platform or even re-adopting the 2016 platform since there will be no convening of a platform committee. The 2016 platform will remain in effect. A Republican official says that nothing has really changed in Charlotte. The plan was to have a few hundred delegates there on Monday for convention business, including the formal nomination, and then and that remains the case. The RNC last month chose Jacksonville to host major portions of the convention after largely abandoning Charlotte over disagreements on coronavirus pandemic-related crowd restrictions. So I guess they've come to... Uh, some kind of an agreement. Meanwhile, a group of Republican House members led by Representative Louie Gohmert of Texas introduced a resolution on Thursday that would effectively ban the Democratic Party from the House or force a party name change over past slavery ties, a response to the uh, recent efforts to remove tributes to past members of the Confederacy from the halls of Congress. It specifically cites the Democratic Party's platform support for slavery between 1840 and 1856 and other racist actions by party members through the early uh, to mid-1900s before calling on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to remove any items that names, symbolizes, or mentions any political organization or party that has ever held a public position that supported slavery or the Confederacy from the House and its properties. The resolution also says such a party shall either change its name or be barred from participation in the House of Representatives. We didn't mention Jim Crow and all of the other things that the party supported, its opposition to the civil rights movement and all of that. But this is an effort on the part of Republicans making the point that cancel culture may go more deeply than many of its adherents are prepared to go. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a quick perusal of Joe Biden's campaign platform may cause a double take if you wonder if you aren't looking at Bernie Sanders' socialist agenda. In fact, in many ways, Biden's platform is essentially that all the way down to Sanders himself. Well, since the former opponent have now um, joined forces with the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force, Biden's position as the moderate candidate exists only as the uh, media's popular propaganda. The truth is Biden is the most radical far-left presidential candidate the Democrat Party has ever nominated. And his teaming up with Sanders is everything um, to do with just that. Well, just how much is his platform actually Sanders? Well, as Emily Larson of the Washington Examiner reported, most of the Democratic 80-page draft platform is lifted word for word, word for word, from the 110-page Unity Task Force recommendations, including large portions of six out of nine of the main policy sections in the platform. Now, some paragraphs and sentences from the task force were rearranged and expanded on. And like the platform, the task force stopped short of including a call for the contentious Medicare for All and the Green New Deal policy proposals. But that's about it. 
Larson further notes that huge sections of the platform lifted by the task force recommendations include the combating of climate crisis and pursuing environmental justice section that came out of a committee led by former Secretary of State John Kerry and New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez protecting communities by reforming our criminal justice system, which calls for an end to uh, end of cash bail and sections on immigration and education. Well, given Biden's slipping um, uh, activity, we've long held that the uh, party's real agenda is to simply use Biden as um, the supposed moderate status to appeal to a broad swath of American voters as a means to win the White House as a placeholder. Should Biden defeat Donald Trump in November, it won't be the it won't be long, maybe within his uh, first year, that Biden steps down due to age and declining health, or simply for the sake of social justice to give the reins to his uh, female vice presidential running mate. Following such a handoff, observe just how quickly the moderate moniker is dispensed with that as the Democrats press their socialist agenda into high gear. So I think it's really fascinating to look at the first expression of that in the uh, party's platform. Biden was never a consistent moderate, of course. He has always been a political opportunist, and his team up with uh, Sanders perfectly reflects that characteristic. It's not a shift. It's a consistent, predictable way that he has has moved. That opportunism may have been best summed up by Sanders' campaign co-chair Nina Turner, who uh, griped, it's like saying to somebody, well, I mentioned it yesterday, you have to consume something that's very unpleasant. And despite the fact that uh, you have to swallow it, it's still as unpleasant. It's less flattering even than that. So interestingly, the platforms may tell us something. I mentioned earlier that because of the the, the, uh, uh, 2020 uh, convention for the Republicans, the 2016 platform essentially remains intact. For the Democrats, they are retooling theirs, and uh, reading that platform will tell you a lot more about what kind of an administration a Biden administration would be than perhaps uh, the moderate that we're told um, that we're hearing from in his um, few stump speeches. Kind of an interesting observation. Well, there's one thing that's clear in Scripture. It's that God is a Lord, or rather, the Lord, and we are his servants. He commands, and no matter the cost, we obey. Abraham, leave your family and go into the land I will show you. Yes, Lord. Isaiah, carry my message to unfaithful, unyielding Israel. Yes, Lord. James, John, drop those nets and follow me. Yes, Lord. The absoluteness of his claims, the unyielding ultimacy, the unquestioned authority to command and demand all, they are at the core of the concept of God's majestic sovereignty, his lordly dignity as our creator king, and they all are beautiful, true, and anchoring for the soul. Derek um, Rishawe writes, But for those already weighed down with the burdens of the past few months, staying healthy, keeping the finances afloat, maintaining some semblance of normalcy, the severity of his lordship can threaten to strain us to the spiritual breaking point. Perhaps this is why he was charmed by Julian Norwich's discernment for another dimension of God's lordship, his courtesy. We usually think of courtesy as synonymous with simple politeness, and well, if there's something the god of the whirlwind is not, it is polite. More than mere manners, though, for Julian, God's courtesy is his kindness, his consideration, his friendly magnanimity. Think of it as a lordly solicitude. The lord of greatness is magnified not in abusive displays of power or lack of care for his servants, but in his ability to concern himself with their welfare and dignity. 
I think of Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 and 4. God appeared to Moses in the lordly flame, called him and commissioned him to confront Pharaoh and to lead his people out of Egypt. And yet the weirdest conversation ensues. Moses starts arguing with God. Who am I? You sure you got the right guy? Who's going to believe me? And so patiently, graciously, courteously, courteously, God reassures him. He gives Moses his name, the Lord, and promises his presence. Moses questions him again, and God obligingly gives his miraculous sign to make his case to the people. Moses even pleads a speech impediment. He can't speak, and still the Lord reasons with him, but Moses persists. Send someone else, he argues. Finally, at that point, the Lord gets angry, puts his foot down, and says, look, Your brother Aaron is um, on his way, and he'll go ahead and speak for you. Even in his final declaration, we see the gentle accommodation of the Lord to his servant. In his providential lordship, God had already called Aaron to meet Moses to support him. As J.A. Mochier points out in the message of Exodus, this divine mercy takes note of our weakness and makes provision for them. Throughout scripture, we see the same lordly solicitude, this courtesy toward God's servants. When Elijah, in a fit of self-pity, asked God to kill him in 1 Kings chapter 19, after his apparent failure to reform Israel after the showdown at Mount Carmel, the angel of the Lord comes to him, cooks for him, lets him nap, cooks for him again, and then leads him to Mount Horeb, where God graciously reveals himself to him. And when Jonah pouts at God's mercy to Nineveh, God grows a vine to shade him from the sun, teach him about the constancy of his grace, and chasten his presumptive arrogance in Jonah 4. Truly, he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are simply dust, Psalm 103. Too many of us think of God's lordship with the attitude of the last servant and the parable of the talents. In our minds, he is a hard master, harvesting where he has not sown and gathering where he has not gathered or scattered seed in Matthew 25. In reality, he is the Lord who sees his servants in their distress. The one who will dress himself to serve will have them recline at table and will come and wait on them, Luke 12:37. Indeed, he is the one who has already done this, coming not to be served, but to serve in giving his life as a ransom for many. Insert your name there in Mark 10, 45. Recall then all you who are tired and weary, the words of Jillian of Norwich. Yes, the Lord who is, who is so to be revered and feared is also familiar and courteous, and with him there is rest for our souls. Rest in him, even the things that concern you. He is waiting for you there. Want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.